1: I think the bulk of the researchers were brought together after a a conference that occurred December 2016.
0: That's Bobby Feiler. He's a principal data scientist at Endgame. The research we're discussing today is titled The Malicious Use of Artificial Intelligence, Forecasting, Prevention, and Mitigation. There
1: was kind of a formal panel. Some of the conversation was laid out about the the needs or, or requirements to establish a little bit more rigor within the AI research community to establish norms, kind of garner some sort of aspects of safety and ethics. Over the next six months, I believe they they kind of laid the, the groundwork coming together with the three pillars, kind of the political, digital, and physical security aspects. Myself and Hiram Anderson, another data scientist here at Endgame, were brought in to specifically contribute to the cybersecurity or information security component. And then it was a lot of, hey, let's, let's try to get together and meet virtually uh, 22 opinions uh, and try to figure out what the common themes are going to be, what we want this to read like. We didn't want it to be kind of a, uh, a klaxon or call to arms about a, any sort of robot apocalypse. We wanted it to be very pragmatic, uh, a very thoughtful approach um, that was more policy-driven than kind of the pop culture mainstream media was reporting on. The Oxford and Cambridge researchers, kind of the principal researchers, once everything was written up and we felt comfortable with it, Took it and kind of, kind of brought us across the finish line with editing. Um, there was a ton of help from OpenAI uh, as far as getting some, some of the news out there and, and PR.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a remarkably accessible report. Um, you know, my, my hats off to you. Um, let's start though. I, I think maybe the most fundamental question here is um, at the outset defining artificial intelligence and machine learning. I, I think particularly. In the cybersecurity world, and when it comes to marketing in particular, um, I think those terms have gotten a little bit fuzzy. So, can you help for the for the for the purposes of this paper? How did you approach those definitions?
1: I mean, first, there is no way marketing has ever overstated what AI is. That seems <laughs> implausible to me. I think there's a a, a pretty big misunderstanding. Um, and it's a byproduct of Hollywood, uh, our favorite TV shows and and things like that about what AI really is. For me growing up, it was, you know, things like RoboCop, uh, which was, which was super exciting. Mm -hmm. And and then later I robot and, and all of this fun stuff, Lieutenant
0: commander data
1: exactly exactly yeah. <laughs> so there were there were all these references in, in pop culture about what AI was supposed to be when in reality it's uh, it can be much more mundane I, I I think we've seen recently there's there's been some more interesting aspects uh, but it's core it's it's really just kind of statistics in machine learning and and for the folks listening that that don't really understand machine learning Uh, there are three main pillars. uh, This concept of supervised learning where you have examples of something with some sort of label and then you train a model to recognize it. A good example is like spam detection. Unsupervised learning is where you have a bunch of disparate data and there are no labels and you attempt to cluster them together based on commonalities in hopes to deriving some sort of information. And a lot of times that's used to Derive labels, so you could look at things like economic factors, uh, location, schools, and and all of this, and attempt to group together and categorize uh, people or districts into you know uh, red versus blue, rich versus poor, things like that. And then the final one, and one that gets referenced. I think quite a bit in the report is this idea of reinforcement learning, where you're treating whatever problem you're trying to solve like a game. And you're allowing an algorithm to try to figure out the best way to solve a problem on its own. And then based off of some sort of reward function, or feedback loop, it takes that information, adjusts its parameters accordingly, and then tries again. And it does this instead of you know five or six times, like it would take us to learn how to shoot a basketball or you know swing a golf club it does it millions of times in a very small setting is is a way to perfect a particular approach
0: so let's go through uh, you all lay out a general framework for AI and security threats can, can you take us through uh, what you discussed there
1: yeah so so at its core uh, we try to focus on kind of three pillars the political spectrum, the physical spectrum, and then the uh, cyber spectrum. I think for most people, uh, the the things that you would hear about or are hearing about are on the the political side, particularly right now with things like Cambridge Analytica. Um, There was a more, uh, I think, humorous one that occurred with uh, Jordan Peele from the comedy group Key & Peel, where he made a uh, Obama lip-syncing video, right. where he he basically used AI uh, and some of these algorithms that are readily available now to, to people who are non-practitioners or you know non-PhDs, and, and basically created a video that uh, allowed him to put forth a script uh, that it seemed like Obama was reading from that said the AI apocalypse was coming, and it, all that fun stuff. So you're starting to see more and more of that. Um, Another one that kind of came out that, that I think will have interesting ramifications down the road is this idea of deep fakes. So the ability to, to more or less morph any picture uh, and overlay it with a picture of, of anybody, you know, or anybody you're interested in seeing. And there's, there's a lot of potential safety and security concerns there where, Basically, if, if you make somebody angry, all of a sudden your face could be on a, uh, an inappropriate picture. Uh, there's blackmail concerns and, and things like that. And I think what you're starting to see is, is that sort of accessibility to AI and the lower cost of entry to using it uh, is going to lead to both really good positive breakthroughs uh, and with that, the exploitation of those for more nefarious means.
0: Well, let's explore that uh, specifically. I mean, the, the cost issue. People that I've interviewed uh, over the past year or so, you know, they've said a lot of times the the bad guys when it comes to cyber attacks, they have shied away from AI because it's been expensive, and there are cheaper things that work. You know, just uh, mass spamming or phishing campaigns or things like that. So, one of the things that this paper points out is that the the cost of these tools and is decreasing, and the availability of these tools is increasing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think for the most part, the the researchers you've spoken to uh, are absolutely correct, and, and that's certainly one thing that we try to emphasize in this report, that there have been no outright uses within cybersecurity of AI being used. Researchers within the the InfoSec community have have come up with a variety of use cases, and it's certainly plausible. I think we're still at that stage where where, like you said, the It's just a little bit easier right now to to take the low-hanging fruit approach because it is still effective. But I think what you'll see is the the advent or use of machine learning and AI in defensive technologies within cybersecurity uh, will lead to a little bit more generalized approach to tackling um, the threat landscape. And as those little pockets are shored up, It will require the attacker to become uh, a little bit more sophisticated. And I think they'll look to the very tools that we're employing as an opportunity to uh, attack. So it's kind of a a cat and mouse game, if you will, Uh, or in its truest form, uh, a red versus blue between AI algorithms and, and the people they are meant to stop where they will use those those exact algorithms against us. So I think as far as the the cost concern or resource concern is is being considered, you have platforms right now, and there are dozens of them that make programming AI models and, and algorithms as easy as like a dozen lines of code mm. uh, in, in things like Python. You don't necessarily need a, a math PhD if you want to become more familiar about the underlying concepts. The openness of the AI community, and in particularly the educational aspects, things like um, massively open online courses, uh, have made the the concepts that much easier to understand as well. Um, so between those two, and then just the overall uh, availability of models that are pre trained, you don't really need to know anything about. Which is like the Jordan Peel case, um, where he just grabbed a lip sync model from the internet and and then use that to his own ends. You're talking about coming up with an idea, getting in a super advanced piece of technology that didn't exist five years ago, and then turning it into a, a piece of political propaganda, you know, and you're done before lunch. Like that to me is utterly fascinating. Um, that this sort of thing can transpire so quickly and and so easily, that at its core is, is one of the things that we're trying to get across in the report. I think a good case study that was that was mentioned was was one in the the infosec section about a company and and two researchers from ZeroFox. They do social media analysis and and things like that. Actually, up in Baltimore, uh, where you're at, a good group of guys. They had this idea that hey, what if we started reading people's tweets and then we used a generative model? So something, you see things like AI that can generate Harry Potter stories. It's it's kind of the same concept. You train it on a subset of your tweets and then you feed it a little seed, like a topic, and then it produces 140 characters that seem semi-realistic of something you'd be interested in or something that you may have even tweeted at one time. Mm. So they did that, and then they slapped a URL with a, I think, a Google shortener application and then fed it to a bunch of their friends to see who would click on it. It was amazing the effectiveness. I mean, you're talking going from like five to ten percent effectiveness to sixty to seventy percent effectiveness, all with you know applying like a little bit of data collection and uh, you know a few hours of Python programming. And I, I think when it comes down to, you know, those numbers, that cost is low enough where attackers will start considering that is as a, uh, a potential means to an end.
0: So being able to put something in a familiar voice by training, uh, the I guess, the stylistic uh, specifics of that voice.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, spear phishing is, is obviously super successful, uh, but that requires a lot of manual work. Um, you're talking potentially several hours of OSINT work, um, fully understanding, you know, maybe the look or feel of a particular password reset email or a Capital One credit card statement or, or anything like that. Right. Um, suddenly, if you have access to data, which so many of us put Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, things like that, just out there, readily available, not only our own, but we also show our preferences based off of who we follow. We become very susceptible at that point to, you know, uh, you see this with Twitter, uh, with like promoted tweets. As I set out to RSA last week, every single promoted tweet I got was from a vendor with hashtag RSAc. Right, And it's like, I am moderately interested in this because I am in the area. Um, I will most likely walk by this vendor and it is interesting to see whatever marketing language they're using. Now imagine that with a non-information security professional, and it's about their favorite basketball team, their knitting club that they're associated with, something super specific, but it really required the uh, the attacker not to know anything like that, just to download your tweets, and then pass it through an algorithm. I think that's super interesting from a research standpoint, and it's kind of scary from just a uh, an everyday uh, layman standpoint.
0: Yeah, yeah, and one of the things that the research points out is is the ability, the increasing uh, ability of these systems to create synthetic images, basically from scratch, and it tracks sort of a, the, the system's ability to create realistic-looking human faces, and we're at the point now where. A Synthetic image looks like a photorealistic image of a face And it strikes me that from a political point of view From a societal point of view That if we hit the point where photographic evidence Is no longer photographic evidence And as you say, the generation of these can be done Automatically in a matter of minutes Rather than you know someone having to spend a lot of time at, in Photoshop Or cutting and pasting and so forth Well that kind of changes the game, doesn't it?
1: yeah yeah it really does and you know towards the end of our report our call to action is you know it's it's one part vigilance uh one part openness and taking responsibility but but a huge kind of third component is education and that education comes in the form of education uh towards the the overall population but specifically policymakers uh so that they're aware of kind of the the various side effects of this sort of dual-use, dual-nature technology, and I think if if you or or any of the listeners had were paying attention during the Zuckerberg questioning on the Hill uh, a week or two ago, you can you can start to see that like, you know, these congressmen and congresswomen are are starting to have to tackle these problems that are are by and large very very technical and very sophisticated. And it's one thing when it's data collection, which is kind of a, a very hard concept and relatively straightforward to understand. Data collection, unbeknownst to the user, is a bad thing. Uh, it's a whole nother when it's like political propaganda being created and distributed through sites like Twitter and, and Facebook and, and Instagram that are indistinguishable from you know, everyday reality. I think that's a, a more a terrifying sort of uh, process. and and I, I think that is something that the policymakers are going to be made aware of in the near term.
0: To that point about you know the the uh, the Facebook grilling from from the members of Congress, uh, you know, it strikes me that I, I guess the argument could be made that the fact that the policymaking is a slow, deliberative process, you can make the argument that for a long time that you know that's a feature, not a bug. Um, but as the rate of change increases, the velocity increases when it comes to the developments and things like AI. I wonder: is policy always going to lag, and do we have to make sort of fundamental changes to just be able to keep up?
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, um, and and certainly one that was kicked around quite a bit in the in the, the chat rooms, in, in Google Docs, that the, the researchers of, of this report were, were talking about. What we as researchers need to do and need to be more open to is, and this isn't to say that we're not doing an, an okay job right now, it's just like anything, um, we can do better. Uh, and that's just being more open with a lot of the research that we're doing, um, red teaming it, there's a there's a huge component of that I, th- I think in the report both anecdotes stories as as well as the recommendation to do this and a a good example is kind of next generation antivirus which is something that uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with it it's a big marketing term right. uh, obviously but you know these are these are platforms that are are meant to eliminate the need for signature based AV with the expectation that you can get out ahead of threats, which is fantastic. It's proven to be very successful. It's an arduous process that requires massive amounts of samples, um, correctly labeled. But at the end of the day, it's still a byproduct of the data it sees. So even if it generalizes very well and can pick up on, on little nuances here and there, it's still very prone to attack. And with things like VirusTotal, where you can kind of submit a sample and then see a broad spectrum of vendors and how they respond to the sample you submit. There's been research, and, and myself and, and Hiram Anderson, uh, teamed up with UVA uh, to, to do this very thing, which is, could you use AI kind of against AI? Uh, is this possible? And we set up kind of this, this game uh, that could be thought of is like, you know when you were in college and you tried to sneak into a bar uh you showed up the first time and you wore a hat and you're like this hat makes me look older you tried it and the the bouncer was like no 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 that's that's not going to work <laughs> and then you were like you know what i bet if i grew out my beard a little bit that would help right go back again and it's like uh better but but no uh and then finally you're like uh well maybe i just need to get a fake id and then once you get the fake id you're in and you're like oh Oh, that was the solution all along. That was that was the hole in the process. So it's it's kind of the same idea with this attacking uh, next gen AV with with kind of this reinforced game uh, with malware, where you take a piece of malware and you throw it at next gen AV. It spits back good or bad. Some next gen AVs are a little bit more helpful, and they spit back a number like a confidence score or a probability of maliciousness. And this helps even more because you can start to understand the ebb and flow of you making a decision or altering one piece of or part of code and the effect that that has on the score. So if you can do that enough, you can start to learn like, oh, well, if I uh, pack the binary and then uh, scrub strings and, and, and do this or change it to a Russian language pack, then all of a sudden I can get past. Hmm. Uh, and it's it, all of a sudden you learn a recipe for bypass. And this is a complicated process, certainly. It's one that requires a, a little bit of overhead, a little bit of resources. But at the end of the day, if if you're an attacker and you have one shot to get it right, what better approach is there than to, to have access to all this information offline, craft this perfect piece of malware using artificial intelligence, and, and then suddenly you're through? And those are the sorts of concerns uh, particularly from like a next-gen AV standpoint, that, that not only uh, researchers need to be made aware of, but you know consumers and, and politicians and, and things like that. And I think that is a, a very closed example within InfoSec that could be propagated across the physical and political security spectrum as well. There, there's certainly this aspect of, of red teaming that needs to uh, occur, and then reporting back to policymakers. So we perform some sort of due diligence uh, on that end.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, in your example, uh, the other thing that happens is you know, word gets around that uh, the fake ID is the way into that bar, so you have fewer people trying hats and growing mustaches.
1: Right, right. As somebody who works on this problem, again, a, a lot of this stuff is is very, very fascinating uh, because it's it's all conceptual right now but it's it's very easy to look down the road you know 12 to 24 months from now and and start to understand like yeah there's a uh, there's a process uh, that could occur and and depending on whether or not attackers start to believe that the juice is worth the squeeze we may start seeing that so uh, the onus is, is on us to to kind of eat our own dog food and and just like red teaming any other security tool take the results from that and empower the, the product itself we do a lot of things where we propose adversarial training where you're generating like all of these instances of of kind of morphed malware And then saying, like, well, just because this doesn't look like the malware it once was, that doesn't mean that it's any less bad. So now let's train on that so it's at least seen this sort of change in behavior uh, so we catch it the next time. And it's all about, yeah, staying ahead, making sure model drift doesn't occur, that the models don't become stale. Just trying to stay as current and up-to-date as possible.
0: Now, looking ahead, you're looking down the road, um, what were some of the conclusions from the group? D- does it does it seem like appropriate attention is being paid to this? Is it is there hope? Is it gloom and doom? Where did you all land with that? It's a little bit of both, and
1: and to be honest, this was something where uh, researchers were were split in a lot of ways. About, you know, is it all bad? Uh, Is everything fine? I I think for the most part, AI is always going to get kind of a negative connotation. Uh, And and there's plenty to blame from that. And maybe Hollywood is...
0: We've all seen the Terminator. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but at the end of the day, AI is being used every day for for things to make our lives easier as well. Self-driving cars is is obviously one where there have been unfortunate accidents that have occurred... And clearly we're not there yet, but once we are, you're talking about a fantastic opportunity to, to help you know, increase the efficiency of our highways and commutes and things like that. Um, there's also things like AI being used to identify medical problems through x-rays, using computer vision. Like These are all very, very good things that are occurring. And, and, and very few people can say that that, that isn't the case. But that being said, any any technology like this can can be abused. Um, it can be morphed and and kind of twisted to some sort of, as I said earlier, kind of nefarious end. and And those are the things that we we need to be more considerate about. And I think and, and the report goes into this as well, out of all those spaces, physical, political and and information security, we should be looking at the information security first. is is kind of a standard on on how to handle this because the information security community has been having to deal with these technologies being morphed and and twisted to nefarious ends for a long time. <laughs> and yeah, we don't have it down to a a science on on how to handle it best, but but we have attempted to um to do things like disclosure, uh, best practices things like that red teaming have all become kind of mainstays and yeah it's not perfect but it at least provides a roadmap of what could and should be done particularly within this kind of new newfangled space of of ai
0: yeah it's an opportunity for us to lead the way
1: right and and i think a lot of the researchers uh that we worked with were political and physical security researchers um and, and they were the they were kind of the first ones to come to this and, and say, like, well, you guys you guys have things like vulnerability disclosure. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we do. And, you know, it, it works and it's it's reasonably effective. And we have things like bug bounties and we try to open up some of our tools to the community. But we could obviously do better. And I think things like explainability, interpretability of. Of what these AI models are doing um, in each of these fields, information security is certainly one. Like, why why did you call this binary bad? I, I think we need to be personally accountable from a from an ethics standpoint, uh, in a safety standpoint, so people start to understand why why things are occurring and why they're not. And I think that's something that that you'll see researchers and, and security vendors, in particular, take more seriously in the next twelve to eighteen months. I mean, I, I think one thing, and this would be more of a shameless plug, uh, but, but some of your viewers will likely be attending um, Black Hat and DEF CON this year. You know, if you're interested in kind of the AI aspects of, of how it's being employed or deployed in information security, go to those conferences and ask around. I'll talk to vendors. If you're at a vendor booth, try to grab a technical person. I know we at Endgame try to try to supply researchers or data scientists. DEF CON this year, I'm part of a a committee that's standing up a, a village specifically for artificial intelligence just to educate, provide examples and demonstrations on how AI can be used for both good and bad. So whether you're a practitioner, a decision maker, or just a casual observer, you can walk away with at least some understanding from the people who use it day in and day out on kind of the effect that it could have within your life.
0: Let me ask you this: um, Years ago, uh, Carl Sagan, the the famous scientist, he had what he called his baloney detection kit, which was a you know a way to detect if someone was trying to to fool you, trying to pull one over on you. Do you have any recommendations along those lines for folks who are trying to cut through the marketing noise when it comes to this stuff, and any guidance for? If you if you really want to learn about this, but you want to not be fooled by you know the marketing, what's a good approach to that?
1: That's actually a great question and one that uh, that probably doesn't get asked enough.
0: But yeah, the I, I would never
1: recommend walking in blind faith, and and I would imagine that that most people listening to this would would take that same approach. My advice would be for for any vendor that claims machine learning AI techniques. It, it's, it really starts with data. Um, try to get a better idea of where their data is coming from. If it's a closed source and they can't talk about it, get them to talk about the, the number of, of samples they have or the diversity of that data. Um, because bias can creep up very, very quickly in, in these situations. If they, if they only have malware and that malware is specifically uh, Russian and Chinese, then the first time somebody at your company downloads a piece of software with a Russian or Chinese language pack that's completely benign, it will likely get flagged. That's just the nature of bias. Uh, and that bias exists, you know, within ourselves and it exists within the realm of of models and machine learning. Uh, so so data is a big thing. Another big thing is trying to understand how they're training that data, you know, kind of the models they're using and then how often. Uh, just because of how rapid and dynamic the information security space is, particularly from an attacker perspective, that shift in speed uh, of, of attacks and, and discrepancy in attacks can lead to models that aren't trained very often becoming very stale, uh, leading to bypass and things like that. So I would say trying to determine whether or not the machine learning pipeline is mature in the sense that it is it's trained consistently on fresh data uh they're accounting for things like old data uh sloughing off and not being useful anymore those two things are are very very important and could at least provide some sort of background to you in feeling a little bit more confident in whether or not you believe kind of the the spiel that you're being pitched
0: our thanks to bobby feiler from endgame for joining us The research we discussed today is titled, The Malicious Use of Artificial Intelligence, Forecasting, Prevention, and Mitigation. We've got a link to the research paper in the show notes of this episode. And now, a message from CyberBit. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.